0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: Good spring cleaning is afoot at Castle Scream Scene.
0: That is true. You have been working very hard getting the house all clean.
1: Yes, I have been cleaning as I had no research this week. (laughs) So (laughs) to balance out the workload in the overall castle, uh, I have been sweeping up the cobwebs while you've been researching tonight's movie.
0: That's right. Tonight's movie is Night of the Blood Beast from 1958, directed by Bernard L. Kowalski.
1: Now, part of why um, you had to focus so much on research is because we didn't really think that there would be much to this movie and then turns out that there was a lot.
0: Yeah. So this is one of those movies where like, so it's a Roger Corman film. We haven't really seen something from Roger in a while, but typically these Roger Corman AIP films are like, you know hey, here's where the idea came from. Here's what made Paul Blaisdell upset this time. Uh, They (laughs) shot it in like five days for 10 grand at Bronson Canyon. None of the actors ever went on to do anything important. Okay, here's the movie. And that's all basically true for Night of the Blood Beast as well. But there is a behind-the-scenes drama to this movie that gave it a lot more for me to research and read about than many of these films. Well, let's hear the goss. Okay. So, as I mentioned, it's been a while since we last saw a Roger Corman film.
1: Yeah. What has um, he been up
0: to? So, the last picture we saw from him was 1957's The Undead, mm. which I think was the like Bridie Murphy back to medieval times dancing move, like interpretive dance ghosts movie with Satan.
1: Yeah. It uh, it was okay.
0: It was pretty cool. I quite liked that one. After that picture, um, he did quite a number before this one. I mean, Roger Corman, you know, churns these things out, right?
1: Yeah, but I think if memory serves when we were doing The Undead, he pivoted to focus on westerns.
0: Yeah, and like exploitation films, just like other genres. So here's kind of a rundown of what he's been working on. There was Teenage Doll and Sorority Girl, which were both exploitation movies. Mm -hmm. The Saga of the Viking Women and Their Voyage to the Waters of the Great Sea Serpent. Oh my gosh. Which is a fantasy film, like a historical fantasy film. War of the Satellites, which is science fiction. Machine Gun Kelly, which was a film noir and the first lead role for Charles Bronson. Oh, it was also the first time any of Corman's films got serious, positive, critical attention. Oh, neat. Then there was uh, Teenage Caveman, which we've talked about in past episodes, but it's kind of a adventure film. She Gods of Shark Reef, which is also an adventure film. And then Hot Car Girl and Crybaby Killer, which are both exploitation films.
1: I hope that the girl turns into a car no
0: no <laughs> now uh Crybaby killer was also the first film appearance of jack nicholson <laughs> amazing yeah if you is did, he the killer um i don't know i've never seen it okay yeah if you aren't aware like jack nicholson's Early career was all Roger Corman films.
1: I did know that because uh, you've teased me about a Boris Karloff Jack Nicholson yes, picture. That's right. That's later in our yes, future.
0: The Terror. So these last two films, uh, Hot Car Girl and Crybaby Killer, are significant in that they were not films that Corman directed. Uh, he only served on them as an executive producer with his younger brother Gene Corman producing them. Now, Gene Corman, uh, was already in Hollywood when Roger got there um as an agent for MCA, which at the time was one of the biggest talent agencies. But like, in terms of actually breaking into making movies, he needed his brother's help to like get him some some starter credits under his belt. So that's sort of what was going on here. And then um each of those movies was shot by a first-time director, uh, Hot Car Girl was shot by Bernard L. Kowalski, who directed this film, and Crybaby Killer was directed by Joe Addis.
1: Can I ask a question about what the difference is between executive producer and producer?
0: So um, the terminologies sort of date back to Golden Age Hollywood, where the executive producer would be the studio executive in charge of production for that film. So at... Warner Brothers like that would be Jack L. Warner so you wouldn't necessarily see an executive producer credit on a lot of golden age Hollywood studio films because it's the studio yeah Um, it's whoever's in charge of production now in some cases studios had multiple executives who would be in charge of different units like your A pictures and your B pictures Um, and then you'd have sort of production units within studios that handled the day-to-day making of a movie so those would be your producer so your producer's on set all the time uh your producer's getting the movie made your producer is consulting on important decisions or making important decisions if they're a very powerful producer which in the golden age of hollywood producers were very powerful guys like samuel Goldwyn and daryl f sanic um and executive producers are more supervisory Okay. Now.
1: So executive producer isn't necessarily like, I am the executive producer, but it's more like I'm the executive who is the producer of this movie on behalf of the studio. Correct.
0: Okay. Now that has evolved over time. Yeah. Um, so today executive producer can mean all kinds of things. Um, it can mean this is the person who put up the money because um, producers don't typically put up their own money. It can also mean this is the person who came up with the idea. Like it can be a courtesy title for creators. So like Gene Roddenberry with an executive producer title on Star Trek, even after he stopped really handling the day-to-day of making Star Trek, you also see it given out on in TV, especially to the showrunner of the series, because you'll never actually see someone in a TV show given the credit showrunner as like, a job title on the show. Um, so the head writer usually gets credited as like an executive producer, you know, if your company put up some money for it or you consulted on the pilot or, you know, so it's kind of can be given out for a lot of reasons, um, these days, but it typically means someone with a lot of either money or name value who maybe came up with the core idea or was the one who greenlit the project but who isn't really associated with like the day to day of getting the movie made in these cases, Corman is the executive producer because he's the one putting up the money. Because as we recall, Corman's method of doing business was to use the box office receipts from movie a to fund movie B. Yeah. Now this shift from directing to producing was sort of marking the beginning of a new attitude from Roger Corman about his career one of these changes in attitude was the start of a trend of saving the best projects for himself and letting the other sort of more typical pictures that he would produce be directed by other people um so you know he gets to direct machine gun kelly you get to direct night of the blood beast um okay and this was very much an attempt to build on the critical success he had gotten from machine gun kelly while still profiting from these lucrative drive-in pictures you know he had finally gotten critical attention and like positive reviews and so he was like oh you know maybe i can be a real director like maybe i can be a real filmmaker and build on this success but he knew that like the money is coming from you know Attack of the 50-foot monster kind of movies. Um, That was a different guy, not Corman. (laughs) And so, you know, it was like, okay, well, I can executive produce those movies and still make money off of them, but I can bring in some schlub to direct. And then I don't have to have the day-to-day headache of directing.
1: Yeah, and save his creative energy for things that he's actually passionate
0: about. Right, exactly. Corman also, like, when he was directing, he found it to be very exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he really did sort of work all hours of the day trying to get these movies done as like quickly and cheaply and well as possible. Um, Whereas he, he said later that like producing he could do in his sleep.
1: Sure. It's a different um, level of management. Yeah, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now an unforeseen side effect of this would be the creation of what is probably the biggest impact Roger Corman had on Hollywood which is what is informally known as the Roger Corman film school, um, Mm. where basically what Corman would do to find directors to direct, you know, um, these cheapo movies was he would basically just grab like some young non union kids, uh, be like, Hey, you want to make a movie, right? And grab them for cheap and let them direct their first motion pictures under his supervision. And, you know, have that lead to people having big careers. There's a lot of big name directors who are examples of this. Um, a recent example in this time period, like May 1958, is the film Stakeout on Dope Street, which Corman was the executive producer on. But it was the directorial debut of Irwin Kirshner, who would later go on to be George Lucas's teacher at USC film school mm-hmm. and then lucas you know invited him on to direct um, empire strikes back
1: isn't james cameron a francis ford of, coppola yeah, yeah, ron
0: yeah. howard james cameron are three names off the top of my head there's definitely a lot more so after the production of the hot car girl and crybaby killer double feature for allied artists the corman brothers wanted to return to the horror sci-fi genre for aip they approached Jerome Bixby to write them a script, having enjoyed his work for IT, The Terror from Beyond Space. Bixby was really busy on other projects, so he recommended a friend of his, a young 21-year-old aspiring writer named Martin Varno.
1: You say that name like I should know it. No. Okay.
0: He's just the main character of this following story. Okay. Okay. Varno wasn't part of the Writers Guild. He had never written a screenplay before, and he had no idea what the regular pay for a screenwriter should be, making him perfect for the (laughs) penny-pinching Cormans who offered him $200 for the job. He acted like he knew what he was doing in conversations with the Cormans, like, yeah, I know how to write a script, and also, you know, helped give them the impression that he wouldn't write a very expensive script, and so the deal was done. Varno set about writing the script, which he titled Creature from Galaxy 27, which Roger Corman promptly changed to Night of the Blood Beast. That is a much better title. Gene Corman, um, during the brainstorming process, contributed some ideas that Varno didn't use. And Varno would later note that Gene basically did nothing without Roger okaying it first.
1: Sure, this is he's... That's, as you said, that's what an executive producer is supposed to be doing, right?
0: Right. Um, But, you know, there was sort of this idea that, like, as the executive producer, Roger should be more hands off, hands off, taking a back seat, kind of role. And instead, it felt more like Gene was like a puppet for Roger. Um, Now, as it was Varno's first screenplay, uh, he ran it by his writer friends, Bixby and Harold Jacob Smith. Um, As well, he also ran it by the Corman Brothers fairly regularly with each draft, uh, getting notes from them and so on. He spent six weeks writing it. The Cormans selected 28-year-old Bernard L. Kowalski, who had just done Hot Car Girl for them, to direct Night of the Blood Beast. So this would be his second feature film. Uh, Kowalski had experience before the Cormans. It was mostly directing television, and he would remain primarily a television director through his career. The cast was similarly made up of TV actors like Michael Emmett and John Baer, as well as Corman regulars like Ed Nelson, who later went on to play Dr. Michael Rossi on Peyton Place. The film was shot in six days for $68,000, with most exterior shooting done at Bronson Canyon as normal for these kinds of films. The monster costume for the alien was reused from the monster costume created for Teenage Caveman, uh, with some alterations to give it a bit of a different look.
1: And this isn't a Blaisdell creature, right? That's
0: correct. Yes, it is not. As normal for a Corman production, the atmosphere on set was that of a swift-moving, energetic set where everyone could pitch in ideas, particularly if they helped keep the budget down. Both Corman brothers were on set, with Roger providing supervision and guidance to the less-experienced Gene and Kowalski. So, like, Gene's learning how to produce and Kowalski's learning how to direct from Roger, who's on set, uh, like, being their training wheels. Varno was also present for filming just in case like rewrites were needed Um, though on the spot dialogue and story revisions were often created by Kowalski and the Cormans as well as the cast and crew in a very sort of collaborative atmosphere like oh this location fell through so we can't have the scene happen at like the factory so it needs to where can it be well like my wife's out of the house today, so maybe it can happen at like my character's house or whatever, right? That kind of thing. Varno, however, was not happy with the filming process. Um he was not happy with how cheap everything was. And
1: Dude, you're not you're not even a writer. Like,
0: let go. <laughs> he was also not happy to the changes being made to his script without consultation or permission, which sorry, kid, that's Hollywood. The thing is,
1: creators, not just writers, but creators, when their creation is being adapted into something, and in the case of a screenplay being adapted to film and actually put into production, you can't be precious about it because there are so many other hands touching it that it's going to be changed in some
0: way. The other thing is, you know... Other writers in Hollywood have had difficulties with this. And I totally understand. Yeah. Especially because um, it's very different in theater. Like in theater, the writer of the play is the author of the play, right? The director's there getting his vision out or whatever, but it's not the director's show typically. It's the writer's show. And, you know, the writer will be there through all the rehearsals and any changes you make to a theater script have to go through the writer.
1: But Varno hasn't done any plays.
0: No, but like, you know, you can understand that he would be like, oh, I'm the writer, though. Why are you making changes to my script? Isn't that my job? Sure. In movies, though, that's very different. Like, in Hollywood, the writers are treated like trash, um, which... isn't
1: right i don't agree with that isn't
0: correct you know and there's very few cases of writers who have enough power in hollywood to be like no i have final approval like guys like patty chayefsky and like aaron sorkin kind of come to mind but the fact of the matter is as much as writers being treated like shit is a bad situation it's not abnormal It's kind of par for the course. So I don't really have a ton of sympathy here with Varno, an absolute nobody who got picked up off the street being like, oh, it's my script, you know. But regardless, what's important is that he was upset. And so being very upset with how things were going, Varno was like, well, what can I do about this? Like, they shouldn't be changing my script without me. You know, who do I talk to? Who do I go to? To complain basically and so one of the actors was like well you go to the writers guild right they do arbitration um so he went to the writers guild about the issue there wasn't really much they could do about the whole changes being made on set thing without his consultation because as i just mentioned that's just how movies work um but they did convince him to join the writers guild at which point they could then bring arbitration against Corman for paying him $200 to write the screenplay, which is way below, like, essentially minimum wage for a writer. What
1: would be standard?
0: I don't have any idea. Um, it Like, I have no idea what union scale would have been for an independent production in 1958. That's so many different Conversion factors versus like what Union scale is now that I just have no clue, um, but two hundred dollars is ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> um. So Varno did so, and arbitration was brought against Corman, who was in the middle of editing the film at this time. And Corman was furious. Uh, so the two Corman brothers offered to Varno that they would keep hiring him and using him as their screenwriter if he dropped the arbitration. Varno refused. And so in response, Corman refused to pay him anything. So in response to that, the Writers Guild of America banned Corman from using guild writers. And so Corman just stopped using union writers. And it was years later when Corman actually like really wanted to hire a union writer on one of his films that he finally like sent Varno a check.
1: Okay. It wasn't a ban for life.
0: No, it was definitely a um like you have to do this, otherwise you cannot. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, that wouldn't be the only time Varno would bring the Cormans to arbitration with the Writers Guild over this same film. Oh. Because Varno learned that Gene Corman was going to get a story credit on the movie you know, because he threw out those ideas in the brainstorming process that Varno didn't use. Okay. So he was going to get this story by credit. Uh, so Varno filed a second arbitration because none of Gene's ideas were part of the movie and he could prove that from the various drafts and like notes and memos. So Varno won that arbitration as well. And WGA ruled that Gene could not be credited on the film. Roger refused this as well, on the grounds that the credits had already been made and the prints of the movie shipped out and having them recalled and changing them would have been prohibitively expensive.
1: Something tells me that that is a lie. Mm.
0: It probably would have been prohibitively expensive, but like you're supposed to do it anyway. Yeah. But you know, Roger's out here very much on like the fringes of real movie making. I think from his point of view, it's like, well, I don't, use guild writers and i don't use guild directors and i don't use guild actors like i do everything non-union because it's cheaper so like what do i care if you're mad at me i think was very much his attitude so um varno later said I'm one of the few people who ever arbitrated against Roger Corman because so many people were so, my God, I'm working. I'm working in a real movie. Roger's giving me a chance. And meanwhile, Roger's paying this guy hardly anything a week. And they're like, well, hey, that's better than nothing. That was the thinking of most people. So in Varno's eyes, it's like Roger's out here being like, oh, I'll give you exposure. And Varno's like, no, pay me.
1: That's a little bit of a mischaracterization, it sounds like.
0: Varna would never write another film uh, after this. Uh, he did do some makeup work in the 1960s before switching to sound effects editing in the 70s and 80s. So Night of the Blood Beast was released in August of 1958 on a double bill with Corman's own She Gods of Shark Reef.
1: <laughs> he was like, this one, She Gods of Shark Reef, this deserves my creative vision. hmm <laughs>
0: Varno recalls going to see the double feature with Forrest Ackerman and Jerome Bixby and those two men needing to restrain him during the movie because he hated the picture so much. Like he was wanting to like get up and yell and like cause a scene and stuff and they were having to like hold him back in his chair.
1: Oh, I don't think he was cut out for this
0: business. Reviews for Night of the Blood Beast were largely negative. The Washington Post said it would be hard to find a worse movie. While Variety said, it finally happened. Someone wrote a story about a pregnant man. Oh, I'm sorry, did I bury the lead there a little bit? Yeah. What? So the alien impregnates people? Men? A man?
1: Has there been any research or academic work or anything tying this to alien at all?
0: There are no ties between the two that Dan O'Bannon or anyone working for 20th Century Fox would admit to. Sure. So Night of the Blood Beast (laughs) was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 as the first episode of the seventh season. It is available on Tubi and it's also available on our YouTube playlist. And in this case, I actually recommend our YouTube playlist version. Um, Night of the Blood Beast is in public domain. So there's just a ton of shitty home video releases everywhere. Um, The Tubi version looks like it was telecinied off a like VHS tape. Whereas the YouTube playlist version looks like it was taken off of a sixteen millimeter print, so it's mildly, you know, better in quality.
1: Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can head to ScreamScenePodcast.com to find our YouTube playlist. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Night of the Blood Beast from 1958, directed by Bernard Kowalski.
0: See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Night of the Blood Beast from 1958, directed by Bernard Kowalski. Ben, first thoughts? Meh. All right.
0: So it's 62 minutes long, and I think, like, it does a serviceable job of filling that hour. If you were, like, a big sci-fi fan of those times you might've found it entertaining and the plot is largely so familiar in all of its beats and characters and dialogue that you might've even found some time to, you know, neck with whoever you brought to the movie because you didn't need to pay attention too much.
1: Don't give away all of our secrets, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> We're professionals here. <laughs> yeah. I think fans of sci-fi might find this a little interesting Because there are some things that you could be like, oh, well, maybe that's like a little nugget that turns into this that turns into that. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, not nothing super special here.
0: Not particularly, no. The storyline is very familiar. And I think even by 1958 would have been very familiar. But by like 2020, it's like.
1: We're we're in 2022, my love. Oh,
0: no. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, why don't you tell us the story?
1: Um, So luckily the cast is very small and focused. We have Major John Kokorin, a Dr. Alex Wyman, another Dr. Julie Benson, who is uh, the fiancé to John, Steve Dunlap, Dave Randall, and Donna Bixby. And I'm pretty sure her last name comes from that author. Yeah, Jerome
0: Bixby. Yeah, for sure.
1: So when we open, we are in a rocket ship careening back to Earth. And Major John, to ground control, (coughs) uh, says that he has to do a crash landing. So he does that. And Donna and Dave from the nearby Space Agency tracking station rush out to go and recover the spaceship as well as recover John. Uh, Unfortunately, they find John dead much to julie's dismay who as i said is his fiance. now when they find the ship there is a tear in the side of its canister like where John capsule. Would, the capsule that's the word and there's like this strange muddy substance on it uh when the rest of the team arrives uh the hole somehow is bigger and the mud is gone when the doctors take a look at John, they go, yeah, he, he's dead, but rigor Mortis hasn't set in, which is really strange because he's supposedly been dead for like three to four hours. So they take him back to the station to do a further analysis. Um, and they discover that, you know, his his blood pressure is exactly the way it should be for someone who's alive but he has no pulse so no heartbeat he's not breathing there's no brain activity they take a look at his blood cells and he has the normal like red blood cells white blood cells but there's now a third foreign alien kind of blood cell that seems to be like moving independently and possibly taking over some of these blood cells now there's more than just weird medical stuff going on The radio seems to be acting up and going out, the electricity keeps flickering and eventually turns off, and even their watches stop working, and they trace all of this back to, um, a strange magnetic field affecting everything. Now Steve goes out to check the electrical system and, like, the radio tower, and he gets attacked by this strange creature. Um, So for protection, everyone decides to sleep in the same room as they wait for, you know, someone to notice that this station is incommunicado. That night, Dr. Wyman is killed. Um, He is found hanging upside down in the medical lab with half his head missing.
0: Yeah. um, We only see it in shadow. To clarify which half, um, based on all implied visual evidence we have it probably is very accurate to say that like his face is what's missing sure like that his head's been cut from top of skull to chin not like at the eyes or something
1: sure it's a vertical not a horizontal yeah as everyone's like what the fuck happened to dr wyman john awakes and they're like, you should be dead. Like, what? what's going on? And he's like, well, you don't think I had anything to do with Dr. Wyman dying, did you? And everyone's like... "We."
0: <laughs> what a conclusion to jump to.
1: <laughs> so they take a look through basically an x-ray about, like, what is going on with John. And they discover alien fetuses inside him. And they look like little chameleon embryos to give you kind
0: of an idea of what they look like. Sure. I was thinking seahorse, but chameleon is also, yeah, definitely a good visual reference.
1: And John also seems to be acting a little strange. He is like, well, you know, I don't know if the creature's actually out to kill us. And they're like, "Mm." and he's like, but like he, he, the creature had many opportunities to kill any of us and all of us. And yet it didn't. Maybe it comes in peace. Um, And he also seems to have some sort of like, uh, not necessarily to this extent, but a telepathic connection to this creature because he's like, well, I feel like I can tell when it's coming near
0: or something like that. And he has access to information that he really shouldn't have because he was dead at the time, which I get that it's, he has this telepathic connection to the creature, but it also feels a little bit like so we don't have to spend time bringing his character up to speed.
1: <laughs> and one such case of this is uh, almost implying he has access to Dr. Wyman's thoughts and, like, reasoning capabilities. Um, so John's like, hey, maybe we should give the creature a chance to explain itself. And everyone's like, mm, okay. And John's like, yeah, I'll lead you to where it is, and then it can, like, tell us what's up. And everyone else is like, mm, Okay. Dave and Steve are less okay with this, and they create some gas Molotov cocktails uh, with the idea of, like, you know, we've we've shown that the creature is um, immune to gunfire but not to regular fire, so...
0: Yeah, like every other monster in these yeah, movies. Yeah,
1: so their plan is to, like, douse it with the gas Molotov cocktails and then light it aflame with a flare gun. So John leads them to a cave, and the creature speaks with dr wyman's voice and it's like yes i took his face so i could like have the capabilities of speaking to you
0: yeah he like ate dr wyman's brain so now he's got dr wyman's knowledge and voice because as we all know the vocal cords are stored in the the frontal lobe you are what you eat oh
1: well i completely missed that setup i'm sorry it's
0: okay (laughs) (laughs) you're tired
1: now this creature explains that my civilization was like yours and then we destroyed ourselves because we created our version of the atom bomb and i'm here to help you avoid that same fate also i can give you immortality because as you can see dr wyman isn't dead he lives on in me and everyone's like fuck no <laughs> and it's at this point where john is like who's been like super on the creature's side He's like, yeah, you'd be surprised that I have empathy for him because, like, I have its babies in me, but no, really, let's hear him out. Hearing the explanation, John's like, no, this is awful. Kill me and kill the creature. People hesitate. So John stabs himself in the gut, and that's when Dave and Steve hit the creature with the gasoline, the flare gun, and it goes up in flames. And everyone just kind of goes like, well, that was awful. And then they walk away, leaving John stabbed in the stomach, dead on the cave floor.
0: Down in Bronson, Canyon.
1: And they really should burn that body because, like, really, he could just be giving himself a cesarean section. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's the end.
0: So before we start talking about this movie, I want to talk about the poster. Okay. So the posters of these Roger Corman movies, um, and all the movies we watch are kind of hard to get across on the show because, you know, audio medium, but typically these AIP movies have pretty dope posters. And sometimes the movies, well, okay, the movies never live up to them, but sometimes they are more accurate than other times. Um, sometimes it's clear that like, the movie designed itself to look like the poster. Um, other times it's clear that like the poster came second, whatever this has perhaps one of the most inaccurate posters we've seen so far. (laughs) Now these posters have very similar elements. Um, usually a woman in underwear screaming and a monster. Um, and usually there's some justification for these elements in the movie. Um, The last time we've had something this inaccurate, I think was beast with a million eyes where there was like a big cat head with millions of eyes and tentacles that never appears in the movie and a screaming girl in underwear who never appears in the movie for night of the blood beast. We have our screaming girl in her underwear who doesn't look like any of the women in this movie who none of which appear in their underwear at any point in the film Then we have like a big clawed hand that looks nothing like the um, monster's hand in this movie, which has sort of like DMV nails. Um, Oh my God. And then that big clawed hand is holding as if it was maybe the size of like a peanut, uh, a man's severed head with like the eyes rolled up. So it's all white, implying the monster is quite large. And the caption is, no girl was safe as long as this head-hunting thing roamed the land. Implying, of course, that, you know, this is a thing that takes people's heads and... Well,
1: it took half, half a head.
0: Sure, sure. But it implies that it's sort of taking heads, like that's its modus operandi. That and making women feel unsafe for some vague, uncertain reason. Um, none of that's here. Also the title
1: well see i can see where um blood came from because we get some like pretty neat close-ups of blood cells that are like animated or something so i can see like you know you you latch onto that
0: okay i was just thinking that like the monster isn't a blood beast of any kind it's not like a dracula it's not feeding on blood it's not like made of blood um there's really nothing special about blood other than as you say like they examine John's blood and it has the bacterial infection or whatever. But you know, all that really tells us is that the alien has blood, which mm-hmm. isn't really like a special trait in any like I'm a blood beast yeah. by that definition. I wouldn't
1: introduce you as like, yes, and here is my blood husband.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and to be fair, you know, there are a couple nights in here mm-hmm. rather than just the singular night of mm-hmm. the blood beast. <laughs>
0: I just wanted to get that. So false advertising. (laughs) False advertising, right? Totally. I will say, um, I think this thing has good bones. Night of the Bone Beast. Right. No, that's also (laughs) bad. It's sort of a ripoff of Thing from Another World with like our small cast trapped in a small location with a monster. And of course, it has some foreshadowing of Alien with the alien impregnating the guy. And even like down to... We think he's dead at first, and then he just, like, suddenly wakes up, and we're like, oh, great.
1: A little bit of the thing with, like, examining the blood. hmm um, And because people were, like, attacked a couple different times, I thought that they were going to have something. Some
0: alien babies? Yeah, yeah, or just
1: something, some kind of infection or something.
0: The monster suit isn't great. No. But we have seen worse.
1: That is true. It looks kind of like... Um, A parrot covered in tar.
0: Yeah. The thing about this movie that was really strange for me... So, listeners of Scream Scene, if you are not familiar with the parody film The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera, you need to, like, go find that movie right now. Uh, I have it on DVD and VHS. Ooh. Um, Got a big deal
1: over here.
0: (laughs) It is a basically a parody film made in the 2000s that parodies all of these 1950s we had $12 and went to shoot in Bronson Canyon for a weekend movies and this movie just like really twigged my like lost skeleton of cadaver memories because the monster suit in that movie has kind of a very similar sort of appearance with like the long claws and it's just the way that it's like this big ungainly suit
1: ungainly yet the man in it moves
0: that's true he this like
1: one point where he like to get away he literally side jumps like as if he's going to do one of those like captain kirk hip tackles uh, sure but down into some shrubbery yeah. like damn dude that's dedication for sure you're getting paid like what a hundred dollars like dang
0: the script isn't bad i don't think
1: they like i said there's interesting nuggets of ideas here but i would say that the script doesn't do anything with them and by and large the movie was boring at parts
0: it's derivative Yes. other than the element of the alien impregnating one of them um i feel like i've seen these characters in these situations having this argument before
1: and we have multiple scenes of the, basically the same dialogue. Yes. Setting up the exact same, like, cool, we're making these Molotov cocktails. Make sure not to tell Johnny.
0: Or don't you think we should give the monster a chance? Yeah. Um,
1: and it, so it just gets kind of like, this could have been like a half hour to 45 minute Twilight Zone
0: episode. Yes, very much so. Um, it would have been an Outer Limits episode, although neither show I think has started running yet. Um, because sorry
1: is the difference between twilight zone and outer limits that one deals with space
0: no the difference is that outer limits has monsters
1: okay and twilight zone the monster is us right yeah you're
0: getting it yeah (laughs) so but you're totally right like sarah skipped a big chunk of the movie in her plot synopsis because you can because there's a section of the movie that falls under the
1: let's go look for him donna gets attacked blah 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 it's
0: it's the section of the low budget movie where we go back and forth between like the set and the location over and over again to spend some time yeah and it's totally not needed right john Um,
1: being like oh julie i do still have feelings for you so i'm happy to pick up where we left off and julie being like you're legally dead
0: (laughs) um but, you know, I don't think the writing is bad. We don't have, like, Ed Wood-esque dialogue here. Yeah. Now, part of that might be because so much of this dialogue feels cribbed from, like, other sci-fi movies. That's it's just, like, copying someone's homework.
1: Yes, but... It's delivered in a very natural way. Yeah, the
0: actors, I don't think, do a poor job here.
1: I think they're doing a fair job. There's no standouts, but no one's terrible. Yeah. I would not be surprised if um, these people went on to continue doing B-movies or would even go into TV. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of them would be able to transition into A-pictures, but they are competent actors.
0: Yeah, um absolutely. They are actors who you can tell like are getting work regularly. Yeah. Basically. I will say that the worst thing in this script is the amount that it kind of has to bend over backwards to
1: avoid saying dude's pregnant
0: oh no i mean it does do that and it's very strange and and odd but i i understand like that like it was a very taboo word at the time and so on
1: they keep calling him a breeding ground
0: which is not like
1: i mean i actually know because breeding ground is the ground upon which breeding occurs right he
0: would have been a breeding ground before he was impregnated yeah Anyways, uh, let's let's sidestep. Um, no, it's the fact that, okay, a key detail in the plot that didn't come up in the synopsis is John is the first man in space. <clears throat> they shot him up, he orbited the Earth, and he came back down. You know, just like John Glenn or Yuri Gagarin in real life, um, which Yuri Gagarin wouldn't be the first man in space until 1961. Um, but the movie needs to have five characters in a secluded location with nobody else. And we need to be in Bronson Canyon. Um, the tracking station base is an old TV studio, uh, broadcasting station that they're shooting around. You need to have this isolation cause it needs to be cheap. So the script has to really bend over backwards for that to make sense. And it's this idea that like, oh yeah, these guys were tracking his descent. They just happened to be the closest ones, I guess, to where he came down. They went and grabbed him, brought him back here and the magnetic storm, you know, takes out all their communications. So nobody knows. And it's like, oh yeah, Canaveral won't know that there's a problem until uh, we hit like the scheduled 12 hour check-in time. And then it'll take them some time to send some people here. And I'm kind of sitting here like, That implies that you guys are the only tracking station that like Canaveral had no contact with this guy on the radio at all that like nobody knows that he's already down here that nobody was tracking him in space. Like everyone would know Mm -hmm. he's down and he came down in this spot by this tracking station. Let's call them. Oh, no one's picking up. That's weird. They would have been swarmed with helicopters filled with like NASA people and like the president of the United States to go shake this guy's hand like Within hours. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a weakness in the script, but that's definitely like a, you gotta accept it because the movie's cheap kind of thing.
1: I do think that there are some very neat directorial choices in here. So Dawn is a photographer. It's unclear whether she is here to be a photographer or if this is just her hobby. I got the impression it was her
0: job here, but...
1: So she takes photos at the ship and the way that she's taking photos and we're cutting between the scene and her taking photos and stuff felt very like a crime scene photographer type of thing from like a film noir. Whenever we are at the station and um, we're in the room where it's like the medical area, John is consistently like when he's lying on the table, his body, mainly his face is always in the background, even as characters are talking Um, and so it was just a very neat touch around, you know, making sure we're like, is he dead? Like we're talking around him, but why is he in shot kind of building a a bit of attention there? Um, and then of course the finding of Dr. Wyman's body is quite an interesting way to approach. God, his face is gone, but how do we not show that?
0: Right. Um, yeah. And there's some like other really good shots and interesting moments during action scenes, What I will say is the directing for this movie feels like TV, Mm -hmm. specifically like TV of this era. Like if you watch like Playhouse 90 and stuff like that, it feels like TV, which makes sense. Kowalski was a TV director, but it does feel like top notch TV directing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He does a really good job of building tension and atmosphere. There are shadows mm-hmm. in this movie. You can tell when we're day versus night. The and camera moves. Yes. Lots of camera movement during scenes where like you would not anticipate them
0: putting in that kind of effort for that scene. Right. So yeah, good on Kowalski. The editing though. The editing's bad. The editing's really bad. Um, they, they break a rule that you tend to not notice as a rule until people break it. Um, We kind of had a similar conversation about a movie recently about, like, in this time period, people didn't break rules on purpose, so when they get broken, you know it's incompetence. Basically, what they have in this movie is jump cuts, um, which really wouldn't become, like, on purpose, look at me, I'm so arty breaking this rule until the French New Wave films in the 1960s. Um, What it is is we'll have a scene with, like, Dr. Wyman and Julie in the medical room, talking about whatever, and then we will cut to the next scene, which is also Dr. Wyman and Julie in the medical room talking about whatever you're not supposed to do that um just sort of cut suddenly to the same set with the same characters, but now it's some time later um and a new scene because it's confusing to the audience about like wait, did we miss something? Did something get cut out of the movie accidentally? Like, what's going on? What you're supposed to do is either cut to different characters in a different scene with a different conversation and then cut back, or... Dissolve. You could do that, but the more common thing is um, to cut to seagulls.
1: Yeah, B-roll.
0: Yeah, so you go to, like, an establishing shot of the building or, you know, the actual phrase is cut to seagulls because the joke is like you cut to some seagulls flying around in the sky and then you come back yeah um and they this movie doesn't do that so there's a <laughs> bunch of like these weird jump cuts i don't um, know
1: if there are seagulls in bronson canyon ben
0: i mean California's by the sea
1: but is bronson canyon by the sea
0: so um <laughs> coming back to the script yeah which i'm coming back to mostly because you know Roger Corman ruined Martin Varno's vision and impugned upon his, you know, writerly privileges and so on.
1: Uh, I very much disagree because the natural delivery Mm. of the dialogue by the actors makes it clear to me that whatever they came up with on that day, whether it was like the full scene being ad-libbed or whatever, like everything's felt, very smooth which means that they changed it for the better
0: Mm. Varno I know did research on like the then nascent space travel space race stuff for this movie um and I also know that the idea to have the movie have a theme of like man's fear of the unknown and the way that like man immediately wants to destroy what it doesn't understand and like having prejudice against something because it's ugly and weird and that's not good. Like that all came from Varno with that. We kind of have to address this movie's like central idea, right? The thing that the movie positions itself as being about, which is this question of like, well, should we give the creature a chance and let it explain its actions or should we just kill it because it's different? a lot of sci-fi films of this era slot into either the day the earth stood still or the thing from another world. Yeah. And what's really even more common is what we see in this movie, which is what I'll call a thing in Clatu's clothing. Okay. Where you have an alien that presents itself like it's Clatu, but then it turns out, Oh, it's actually the bad guy. And I think that happens A lot in movies of this era because there was a feeling that like you still need to have a monster and you need to kill the monster at the end because everyone deciding to get along at the end is kind of an anticlimactic resolution but the movie feels like it genuinely wants to be saying something about like prejudice and you know destroying things that we fear but it totally undercuts that because it needs to have the ending of the movie be everyone like oh, this thing was evil after all. Let's kill it.
1: I don't think that's anything special about this movie, though. I think that's the case of any time that you have a, as you said, thing in Klaatu's clothing. Right. Um, Because this movie is uh, not doing anything special with that.
0: No, not at all. But I bring it up to point it out as sort of a trend in sci-fi films of this era. I, I also wonder if, like, the ending being that, like, actually, we are going to kill it, it was a monster the whole time, is maybe what upset Varno so much. Um, who knows? I just know that because that was the theme he felt he was saying, maybe the fact that they had to conclude that, no, we do have to kill it, is like... I could see that being like Roger Carmen being like, no, kid, you don't understand. You have to kill the monster at the end.
1: Trust me, I know from experience. Right. Sure. I, I think then that's another case of, like, there being a misunderstanding between Varno and... Corman about what this movie is supposed to be. Yeah. Because Corman's like, I want horror, and varna's like, but philosophical message right. done poorly.
0: Yeah. Um <laughs> I will say about the ending where we find out that the creature is actually bad, it is sort of presented in a way such that like the creature thinks it's doing the right thing. Like it's here to save us by domination. Using our bodies as incubators to breed its race back into existence. Um, and that's going to save our world. I
1: yeah, I suppose from a certain point of view, yeah, I, I would agree that the creature thinks that it's doing the right thing.
0: Like it's not presented as like, oh, and then we found out like that you were actually controlling King Ghidorah the entire time. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? There's
1: no mustache that it's twirling as mm-hmm. it like laughs.
0: But the thing that I noticed was. You know you say like the domination thing right so part of this monster's deal is like it eats us and takes our 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 minds into itself i guess it assimilates yeah right and johnny's whole like oh i was a fool and i was naive the whole time to not see that this glorious message of peace and brotherhood was actually a cover for domination all has a very like communism yes Very 1950s fear of communism thing where it's almost like the movie is about like your liberal friend who thinks that maybe Stalin's not such a bad guy after all. And you need him to understand that, no, the communists are here to destroy our way of life. Right. Like they'll impregnate you (laughs) Um,
1: with
0: their ideas, Sarah. Sure.
1: I don't know if that's like what dude was like going for you know it's kind of like a squinted and you'll see it
0: but also even if it was what he was going for coming back to your point that doesn't make this movie unique either all of these sci-fi movies are about communism right
1: yeah so nothing super like unique or exciting here like i said that there were kind of like some nuggets here and there but you can watch any other movie and you'll see those as well Um, but you know, shout out to the director and the actors doing a pretty good job.
0: It really makes you realize just how different Star Trek really was. That's very true. You know, that like Star Trek legitimately was like, no, the Horda means you no harm. There, there isn't a twist ending here where it turned out the aliens were out to kill us after all. Like, no, you really shouldn't be prejudiced. Well, except for that salt creature. Well yes but even that was like it needs to survive and we need to kill it because it's killing us and not like oh they were communists the whole time or whatever right (laughs) like yeah star trek was very
1: star trek we are the communists
0: (laughs) star trek was very genuine in these messages and i think presented itself very differently in terms of actually holding to these philosophical ideas instead of yeah but we got to shoot the monster Let's move on to ranking. Okie dokie. So I ended up with a pretty big range here. Um, It's a little over 30 movies. It's like 35 films. Interesting.
1: I have a range of four.
0: Okay, well, if your range is inside mine, it's going to make our lives very easy. So I'll go first. Kind of like last week's movie, this movie struck me with like a lot of meh. Yeah. And, you know, very middle of the road. The movie that it reminded me of or made me think of the most was it conquered the world which is at number 71 so it conquered the world is also roger corman it's corman directing it's the one where lee van cleef believes he is helping an alien to take over our minds for the betterment of mankind but it turns out he was a sap all along and we find the monster in a cave in bronson canyon and we burn it to death so you can kind of see why it reminded me of this, particularly because the good guys spend most of their time at like a army base that's had its power cut, right? Very similar setup. I think it conquered the world is better. Yeah. Like I think it does this exact same thing better. Um Hesley Van Cleef, done. Exactly. So below it Conquered the World is the creature walks among us, which is also kind of a but was the creature a good guy the whole time kind of movie. So I started, like, looking down, you know, and I'm seeing stuff like e Vampiri and Freaks and Revenge of Frankenstein from last week, and I'm like, okay, I need to be going lower. So I settle at number 94, where we have another Corman film, Attack of the Crab Monsters, which also had this thing of, like, but maybe the crab monsters are, are good guys, actually, and it's like, no, we have to kill the crab monsters. They're terrible. It's below Catgirl, which I think is probably better than this, even though it's just a cat people ripoff. So I made my ceiling 93, thinking that this could slot in above Attack of the Crab Monsters, which while fun is kind of dire. Looking for a floor, mm, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Phantom of the Monastery is here. And so is like the undead, which we mentioned in the intro. And I said, like, I kind of really liked. And so is like Hands of Orlac and White Zombie so I'm looking down and down, you know. Here's Doctor X, and like Man from Planet X is another movie with this exact same theme. That's much better than this. Um, Whereas in the morgue, etc. And I make it down to Invaders from Mars, um, which also has alien mind control. Again, all these movies from the 50s are very, very similar. And I was like invaders from mars might be better than this like yeah we have to watch the same footage of those four dudes in green bodysuits run down that hall like seven times in a minute but you know there was a lot of characters there was a scale to that movie um below invaders from mars is the vampire's ghost which is not a good movie at all so i made that my floor so my range here is 94 to 129
1: okay When I was looking at ranking, I needed a way to orient myself because I was at a loss. So I looked at another movie that we felt had something to do with Alien, and that would be It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Right,
0: which... I mean, is the movie where they were like, hey, that was cool. Let's hire Jerome Bixby. And Jerome Bixby was like, why don't you hire this college kid who's rooming with me or whatever?
1: Yeah. So that's currently ranked at number 39. Obviously, Night of the Blood Beast is worse. Mm -hmm. But it at least gave me an anchoring point. Okay. Um, So I started looking down from there and started to try to think about like movies that, you know, had fairly good actors, fairly good directing but stumbled. And they might have been looking ahead at something with these nuggets, but didn't get there. And my eyes fell to um, Back from the Dead at 56.
0: Right, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, Very Stephen King, all those things. Uh, It also stumbles, but um, is much better than Night of the Blood Beast. Looking down, I came to the 70s. I, I know in this area, you looked at... It conquered the world, my eyes were drawn to the leopard man.
0: Oh, interesting, yeah.
1: Because it was looking ahead of a serial killers. Right. And, you know, it stumbled, but it has some really fucking powerful scenes. Oh yeah,
0: it's it's hands down better than this for yeah, sure.
1: Absolutely. So I was like, okay, this this is good. And I'm I'm feeling like I'm getting a little closer. Okay. And then I came to Roger Corman's Not of This Earth at number eighty-four. That's the one with the dude with the x-ray eyes. Uh, and he's like transporting people to his planet. Or right, whatever. right. And yeah, at yeah. the end it's like men in black. Yes. Um, so again, it, it had some interesting ideas. I personally feel like not of this earth stumbled a bit, but it was definitely more unique than anything we had really seen. Yeah. Um, and so I thought like, Okay, I feel like this is comparable with the idea of, like, it's stumbling a bit, having some good pieces in it, but not really coming together at the end. So I made number 84 my ceiling. Looking down, we have the Bad Seed, Cult of the Cobra, Quartermass 2, the thing that couldn't die. That's the one where Chest is buried and has the dude's head, and he pulls it out. And that is, like... An interesting idea, but it's kind of boring, a little bit. Like it's kind of like okay, but what's new about this? And had some like interesting things about like the flashback scenes, the weird drama going on with everyone.
0: It didn't really coalesce into anything.
1: Yeah. Whereas Night of the Blood Beast, it's very focused. It has like this central group of people. It's similar to the thing in that way because we're like we're stuck here. We can't reach anyone. Will anyone even get here in time? So that was my range, eighty four to eighty eight.
0: So right below the thing that couldn't die is Jujin Yuki Otoko, which also has a strong, uh, very Ishiro theme of these monsters are misunderstood. Actually, yeah. The difference is that Jujin Yuki Otoko, like many of Honda's uh, monster movies, is a tragedy and the monsters really were misunderstood. You know, and the real monster was man. Whereas this movie, the real monster is the monster. And, you know, there are moments of horror in this film, like Dr. Wyman's death, like Johnny coming back to life off the operating table, as it were. So I think, for me... You could argue that *Night of the Blood Beast* is more of a horror movie than *Jujin Yuki Otoko*. Even if I admire Honda's film more for kind of sticking to its guns and having a more um, consistent message, so compared to the thing that couldn't die, I can only remember like one scene maybe two from the thing that couldn't die, like clearly in my mind. Yeah. But I also know that this movie feels like it was like the script was written by watching other sci-fi movies on TV and copying the dialogue. So I'm kind of thinking maybe under the thing that couldn't die, but above half human.
1: Cool. Let's do that.
0: Okay. Entering the list at the new number 89 is night of the blood beast from 1958 directed by Bernard L. Kowalski.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. If you'd like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice or tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience and we are always hoping to find new folk to share our weird obsessions with. If you have the financial means, we also really appreciate your support over at patreon.com slash podcast where you can support us for as little as a dollar a month that financial support helps go towards our hosting fees, but it also just goes towards like carving out the time to research these movies, watch these movies, talk about these movies. Um, It's really, really appreciated. Our patrons at five and $10 levels get access to bonus content and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly polls to determine what our horror adjacent bonus episode will be each month. Sarah, what's in the lead?
1: We are currently at a tie between 1939's The Hound of the Baskervilles and 1943's Calling Dr. Death.
0: Okay, so, patrons of the night, we need you to head on over to patreon.com and determine whether we're going to be spending an evening with Basil Rathbone or Lon Chaney Jr., whether there's going to be mystery or a lot of narration.
1: We'll be calling the winner this friday april 15th
0: head on over to the website guys and if you aren't a patron yet but you have a firm feeling of which of those movies you want us to watch sign on up it's a dollar a month what can you lose
1: a dollar a month ben shh
0: that's patreon.com slash podcast so
1: what are we watching next week
0: next week sarah we are sticking with a film produced by Roger Corman, that also has a dope poster. Um, it is directed by Bruno Visota who played the like antagonist in Dementia. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was like the 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 rich guy who was unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's called The Brain Eaters. Cool. Which maybe should have been the title of this week's movie. I'm I don't know.
1: No, there's no brain eating in here. Well, like,
0: like metaphorical brain eating.
1: That's metaphorical blood beasts.
0: (laughs) See you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.